If you have your Bible with you this morning, and we always hope that you do, be turning to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to bring to conclusion this morning our five-week study of God's redemptive plan. Paul condensed it all down into 14 verses for us. This morning, we'll confine our attention to verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Recently diagnosed with cancer and given three months to live, she was encouraged by her doctor to begin making preparations to die, something that we should all be doing, by the way. We all have a date where we will pass out of this life and into the next. Thinking about her funeral, she called her pastor and had him come to her home to discuss her final wishes. They discussed the songs that she wanted sung at the service. They discussed the scriptures that she wanted read and the clothes that she wanted to be wearing. But everything seemed to be in order. Her pastor was preparing to leave, and then she suddenly remembered something very important. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that, asked her pastor. This is very important, she continued. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor, perplexed, as you can imagine and as I would be, looked at her not knowing quite how to respond. She explained, In all my years of attending church functions, especially those involving food, my favorite part was when whoever was clearing the table would lean over and tell me, you can keep your fork. That let me know that something better was coming, something of substance was waiting. I want people to see me in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder to themselves, what's with the fork? And then I want you to tell them, something better is coming. You keep your fork, too. At her funeral, people heard some of her favorite songs. They listened to some of her favorite Bible verses, and they admired the beautiful dress that she was wearing, along with the fork resting in her right hand. Over and over, the pastor was questioned about the fork, and over and over again, he smiled. During his message, the pastor told the people the conversation that he had had with this lady some short time previous. He told, her, he told them about the fork and what it meant to her. And I would say this, without being trite in any way, shape, or form, without being disrespectful in any way, shape, or form, the Holy Spirit is a little bit like that fork in the life of every believer. A reminder that something better is coming. Something still is waiting for us. He's a reminder that there's more to come. I would even encourage you this, the next time that you look down at your fork, Let it remind you oh so gently that something better is coming. Though we are the recipients of blessings beyond measure in Christ, we don't receive the full measure of our inheritance. We don't receive the full measure of those blessings this side of eternity. Peter, similarly to Paul, said this in his letter. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Okay, this is where I want you to listen. Perk the ears up. To an inheritance. Listen to the adjectives that he uses to describe the inheritance that we have to look forward to. We look forward to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then he tells us where it is. He says it's kept in heaven for you. Interpretation, waiting 
in heaven for you. There's more to come. There's something of greater substance. All of the blessings that we, that we experience now, because of our union with Christ, are but a foretaste of the blessings that are to come at the redemption of these lowly bodies at the end of days. I look forward to that day. I look forward to that day. As a matter of fact, that's, that's what redemption is pointing to. It's all pointing to that day when God sums all things up in the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that last week. When we finally shed these sinful bodies and we get a new resurrection body and all the promises, all the the blessings, all the promises that we've been promised, God fulfills in an ultimate and final way in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance and it's kept for us, waiting for us in heaven. Paul tells us in our text for this morning that God has graciously given us a deposit until that day. A deposit guaranteeing that we will receive our inheritance as believers in full. With that being said, by way of a little bit of context, let me have you stand this morning if you're able, and let's read God's Word together. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, pens the following words. In Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. You may be seated. Two things that I want to draw your attention to this morning, if you're taking notes, are this. Number one on your outline, the seal of the Spirit. I want to talk about that from verse 13. And then number two, down there towards the bottom of your bulletin, the guarantee of the Spirit from verse 14. The seal of the Spirit and the guarantee of the Spirit. Let's look at the seal of the Spirit first from verse 13. Paul says again, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In our study this far, where where we are today, the text that we've looked at, The last five weeks, we have seen that God the Father planned redemption in eternity past. That's verses 3 through verse 6 in your Bible. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd even encourage you to bracket that. Verses 3 through verse 6 tell us what God has done in eternity past in in planning redemption. Verses 7 through 12... Verses 7 through 12 tell us what God the Son has done in acquiring or purchasing redemption for us. And then here in verses 13 and 14, we see that the Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption by way of regeneration. He takes up habitation in our lives. He regenerates us. He makes us alive in Christ. You see, up to this point, Paul's emphasis has been completely upon God's sovereign initiative and working in redemption. But there's a clear shift in our two verses for this morning. You see, in verse 13 and in verse 14, we see that God's redemptive plan includes man's responsibility to respond to the gospel message in faith and repentance. Everything up to this point has centered around God's sovereign redemptive plan. But in these two verses in front of us this morning, we see that we have a responsibility, and that is to hear the word of truth and to respond to it accordingly. 
Matter of fact, the entire process of salvation is contained in these two short verses before us this morning. And because of that, we would do well and we would be wise to examine them carefully. And so let's do that. Here's what I want to look at first this morning. I think Paul outlines the order or the prerequisites, so to speak, of salvation for us right here in our text. Notice that he tells us that we must first hear the word of truth. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. Let's pause right there. Let's park the car right there for a few minutes and let's talk about what it means that we hear the word of truth. We need to be clear, first of all, about the fact that hearing doesn't just mean hearing the sound of words. We hear a lot of things that we don't listen to. Right, husbands? As your wife does this to you. We hear a lot of things that we don't listen to. But hearing in this text here, hearing isn't just hearing the sound of words, but it means hearing with attention. It means understanding. It means to hear with the ear, with the mind of the ear, rather. To hear with the ear of the mind. Contextually, it implies to hear and to obey. If if you want a good synonym for hear, here in this text, it would be to heed. To heed, to do, to hear and to obey. We see that theme all throughout the New Testament. We want to be not only hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. Doing the Word lets us know and lets others know that we have indeed heard it. There's massive weight given to the hearing of the gospel and scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jesus said these words in John 5, 24, probably a familiar text to many of you. But he said, truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says truly, truly, by the way, he means get this, get this. Don't miss this, don't miss this. This is important, this is important. That's what he's saying when he says truly, truly. It's to get our attention. There in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears these words of mine, and believes in him who sent me, does not come into condemnation, but he is passed over or crossed over from death to life. But there is the emphasis upon hearing these words of mine. We must hear the word of truth. Paul said the same thing in Romans ten seventeen. He said, and faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of truth, hearing the word of the gospel. Remember, we talked last week briefly, those four rhetorical questions that appear in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How can they call on the one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And then two verses later in verse 17, Paul says, and so faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. There's a popular quote that floats around in Christian circles from time to time. Kind of you hear it for a while, and then I don't hear it for a while, and then I hear it again, and then I don't hear it again. But Oftentimes, this quote's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's debatable whether he ever said it because it doesn't appear in any of his writings. 13th century guy. But anyway, here's the quote. You may have heard it. The quote is this. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Sounds good, kind of, until you think about it. It makes for great bumper stickers. It makes for wonderful Christian, quote, t-shirts. But it presents a false and a, a dangerous dichotomy that should not exist. I mean, I, I certainly understand and can appreciate the thinking. The thinking is this. As Christians, we should always seek to live, lives in such, to live our lives in such a way as points to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I mean, that's a true statement. Paul said that in Philippians 1.27. He said, live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel in which you were called. I mean, we are to live a godly life. We are to make much of Jesus, so to speak, with our actions, with our speech. There's a point of application, right? How are we doing there? How are we doing there at making much of Christ in the things we do and in the things we say? I certainly understand and can appreciate the thinking behind such a quote. Share the gospel always or preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. But it creates a harmful, unbiblical, false dichotomy. You know, as Christians, we oftentimes talk about living out the gospel or being the gospel to the lost. But the gospel is more than a way of life. The gospel is history. It's historical reality. It's a declaration of events that actually happened. I mean, Paul summarized the gospel, and ask yourself if you can live this, by the way. Paul summarized the gospel as the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ through whom sin is atoned for and sinners are reconciled to God. You see, the gospel isn't something we can do. It's something we must, and here's the point that I want you to get, something we must announce. We can live in a way that makes much of the gospel, that is worthy of the gospel in which we've called, that is godly, that is pleasing to Christ. But the gospel isn't a life to be lived. It's a message to be announced. It's a message to be announced. I mean, God used words, did He not? He wrote a book. He wrote a book for us, divinely inspired. People are to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They must hear the gospel, the word of truth. If all people have is an example of a moral life, there is very little that separates you and I from a Mormon to a lost person. I mean, I have several good friends who are Mormons, and they're incredibly moral. But the reason behind their morality is wholly different. But if all a person, if all a lost person is, has to go on is looking at your life or looking at my life, and they have to try to decipher or discern the gospel instead of historical facts about a historical person that hung on a historical cross, then there's not much that separates you and me from a moral Mormon. We call that moralistic deism. We must preach the gospel. If people are to hear it, then we can't simply just live it. We must share it. We must share it. It must go forth with words. The gospel necessitates words. I was reminded of the old poem that was turned into a hymn. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. Tell me the simple story as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, the wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. How are we doing at making the gospel known with our words? We may be in a position sometimes where we don't have the privilege to speak the gospel. And there we do our best to try to live in such a way as makes much of the gospel. But if people are to come to saving faith, Romans ten seventeen is true. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Are people hearing it from us? 
or when they pass us at school, when they pass us at work, when they pass us in the grocery store, when they are pumping gas next to us, are we just like the Mormon? Who's just moral, with no explanation as to why. Paul refers to the word of truth. He gives us some definition or expounds a little bit. He says, the word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. Love that word, gospel. It's the Greek word euangelion. It just simply means the good message. The good message. Perhaps the best explanation of the word gospel is that given by the angel of the Lord to some fear-stricken shepherds as he announced the birth of Christ, saying, fear not. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. It's good news. It's a good message. Are we hiding hiding it under a bushel? No. I want to let it shine, says the children's song. A.B. Simpson once said this about the gospel message. He said, the gospel message tells, this is what we must be proclaiming, tells rebellious men that God can be reconciled to man, that justice can be satisfied, that sin can be atoned for, that judgment of the guilty can be revoked, that condemnation of the sinner can be canceled, that the curse of the law can be blotted out, that the gates of hell can be, can be closed, that the portals of heaven can be flung open wide, that the power of sin can be subdued, that the guilty conscience can be healed, that the broken heart can be comforted. And that the sorrow and misery of the fall can be undone. I mean, that's great news. The question is, is are people hearing it as a result of our mouth? Remember, we talked last week briefly, some 38,000 people in our community. We can't reach them all, but we can reach a few. Are they hearing the gospel from us? Who's on your radar? Who's on your radar? And are they hearing the gospel with words? The gospel is really a simple story, friends. There is but one God, and he is creator. And he is holy, and he is just. He's infinitely more, but he's holy, and he's just. And he created man. Man sinned and rebelled against God. That rebellion causes separation in the relationship between a thrice holy God and sinful man. But God, in his great wisdom, in his great love for us, in demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. God came up with, if we can use that language of him, knows all things. Nothing has ever taken him by surprise, but devised a redemptive plan that included the crushing of his son so that by simple faith and repentance, humbling ourselves, turning from our sin, and turning to Christ, we might receive eternal life. That's the gospel message. Simple. If you want it in one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's evangelism in one verse. Let me commend that verse to your memory. The fact that Paul describes the word of truth as the gospel of our salvation reminds us just how powerful the gospel is. Matter of fact, Paul said in a familiar text to many of us, Romans 1.16, he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That word power there in Romans 1.16 is the Greek word dunamis. It's the word from which we derive our English word dynamite. It's explosive. It's powerful. It's mighty, the gospel message is. It's powerful for salvation. 
That's good news both for the hearer of the gospel and the one sharing it. It's good news for the one hearing the gospel because that means that even the hardest-hearted sinner who repents can find new life. That's good news. The gospel's powerful. But it's also good news to the one sharing the gospel because what it does is it removes the burden from you and me of having to come up with, with creative, divisive, even scheming, cunning ways to share the gospel. We don't have to do that. We can tell the old, old story very simply. Very simply. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I declared to know nothing while I was among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. Raise your hand if that describes you when you share the gospel. Weakness and fear and much trembling. If you think that's not true of your pastor, you've lost your marbles. Oftentimes, when I'm sharing the gospel, it's, it's in weakness and it's in fear. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? How are they going to respond to me? Will they reject me? Will they ask me a question I don't have the answer to? I'm supposed to know all the answers because I'm a pastor. Weakness, fear, much trembling. But we need to get our eyes off ourselves and look to the one who does the saving. Just share the old, old story. Paul says, My speech wasn't with plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. You know, there are many messages that will lift spirits. All you've got to do is turn the TV on. For, for every one theologically sound pastor on the radio or TV, there are a plethora that are preaching heresy. I'm sure that we are listening to those well-trusted men, but for every one of those well-trusted men, there are a number who are teaching, preaching, espousing heresy. Messages that, that are just aimed at bolstering your self-esteem. Messages that are just, just aimed at making you feel a little bit better. Messages that are just therapeutic in nature. Messages that don't step on our toes at all. That don't confront us with our sin or bring us before the holiness of God. Or messages that, that appear like Christianity but don't even, don't even open a Bible. But there is only one message that has the power to save your soul. And that is the message of Christ, the gospel of your salvation. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Are people hearing the message from us? The second prerequisite is that we believe in him. A good translation is to believe into Christ, in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Believed into Him. It's a good interpretation there. We must hear the gospel message to be saved, but upon hearing the gospel message, we must believe into Christ. It must lead us to an action. The word translated believe there is the Greek word pistuo. It simply means to have faith in or to entrust yourself to or to commit to. It means, it means you shove all of your eggs into one basket, so to speak. It means that you get out of your dinghy and into the ship of Christ. 
that you sail with him, you entrust yourself to him, that he becomes the captain of your salvation. Not one foot on your own merit and one foot on the merit of Christ. That is sinking sand, my friends. But safely hidden in the ark of Christ, believing into him, entrusting ourselves to him, committing ourselves to him. In other words, being saved isn't merely subscribing mentally to some set of historical facts. We know plenty of people who have heard the gospel and not responded in faith and repentance. Just hearing a set of historical facts isn't, isn't it. We must believe into Christ as a result of hearing the gospel message. Matter of fact, Paul defines faith for us in uh, the previous verse. Just glance back up at verse 12 for a second there in your Bible. Paul says this, he says, so that we who were first to, what's the word? Hope in Christ. That is a good, that's a good definition of what it means to have faith in Christ. To hope in Him. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. It means I'm, I'm anchoring myself to Him. I'm tethering myself to Him. To hope in Him. You see, faith is active, not passive. Saving faith apprehends Christ. It takes hold of Christ. Let me illustrate it for you. Anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. It's beautiful. Just had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon this last year. Let's take a trip there, okay? Here we go. We're all in the bus, and we arrive at the Grand Canyon. It's a beautiful day. The sun is piercing down through the clouds, down to those deep, dark crevices of the canyon. What fills our view is absolutely awe-inspiring. And there we are, huddled together, just taking it all in, and some loony bird comes up with a rope and a wheelbarrow. And he says, hey guys, how many of you think that I can tightrope walk across the Grand Canyon pushing this wheelbarrow? And we look at him like he's flat lost his marbles. And we say, well, I mean, if you're willing, then okay. And so he begins to stretch out his rope and he begins to take one step after the other, tightrope walking across the Grand Canyon, one, one slip of the feet and he dies. But not only that, but he's pushing the wheelbarrow as well. And he makes, it, he makes it successfully to the other side and he yells back at us, Hey guys, how many of you think that I can tightrope walk back? Of course, we've seen him do it once. We believe, right? And so we say, we believe, we believe. And so he starts to make his way back, makes it back successfully, turns and looks at us and he says, How many of you believe I can do it a third time? And we say, Well, we've seen you do it twice. We're pretty confident you can do it a third time. And he says, Great. Who's sitting in the wheelbarrow? That's the difference between belief and faith. Faith apprehends Christ. Faith sits in the wheelbarrow, takes trust out of self, and puts trust wholly in another. Are you sitting in the wheelbarrow? Are you content to put a foot in the wheelbarrow and keep a foot on solid ground? One is converted. The other is misguided. Deceived. Faith is the hand that receives grace. John said it this way, but to all who did receive him, John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believing requires receiving. 
Not just knowing mental facts about him. Not just knowing Bible verses. But putting ourselves into his ship and sailing with him. We must hear the gospel message, number one, to be saved. But secondly, we must believe into Christ. What does Paul tell us happens immediately upon that hearing of the word and that believing into Christ? Look at your Bible. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, no gap, happens immediately, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, I, we could talk for a couple of weeks uh, about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and maybe sometime we'll have the privilege to do that together. But here's what I want you to know. It's important that you know this. Receiving the promised Holy Spirit is not something that takes place subsequent to conversion. There's some denominations out there that teach that there's a second blessing That you come to faith in Christ, you're converted, and then you receive, later, the blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's not what Paul teaches here in our text. Hearing the word of Christ, hearing the gospel of your salvation, believing into him, immediately converted, immediately indwelt with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, the Greek participle here doesn't express antecedent action. In other words, Paul isn't teaching us that we believe into Christ and then subsequently or later on are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The very moment the Holy Spirit takes up residence, uh, that very moment the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. Forever sealing us with the confirming, certifying, and assuring pledge of our eternal state as his children. You see, believing and sealing are to be understood as two sides of the same event. You've got a quarter, it has a heads and a tail. It's one quarter. Two sides, one coin. Okay? At our conversion, upon our belief into Christ, immediately indwelt with the promised Holy Spirit. It's two sides of the same event. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is vast in the life of the believer. Again, maybe at some point in the future we'll have some time to wade through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But without being exhaustive here, the Holy Spirit baptizes the believer into Christ. We call that conversion. Conversion. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer, fills the believer, sanctifies the believer, produces fruit in the life of the believer, convicts the believer, encourages the believer, comforts the believer, leads and guides the believer, reveals truth to the heart and mind of the believer, gives spiritual gifts to the believer, and here in our text, seals the believer. Seals the believer. What's the significance of being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? I think the seal of God's Spirit on the believer, signifies three primary things. If you're taking notes this morning, here they are. Three primary things we're to note about the sealing of the promised Holy Spirit. A there on your outline. The Holy Spirit confirms believers with spiritual authenticity. The Holy Spirit confirms believers with spiritual authenticity. When God gives us His Holy Spirit, He he stamps us, He seals us, so to speak, with a seal that reads this. This person belongs to me and is an authentic citizen of my divine kingdom and a member of my divine family. You know, in antiquity, individuals of nobility would oftentimes wear a signet ring. This is still practiced some places today, but people of nobility most often 
would wear a signet ring that contained their initials or a royal crest or a family crest. And when they were sending something official or when they wanted to stamp something official, they would drop a hot bead of wax on it and they would impress that signet ring on that bead of wax. And it would leave there an impression, an image, a seal. That would let the receiver know exactly who it was that sent the document or the item and it would confirm that it was indeed authentic. Well, God impresses his image on us as believers when he takes up residence inside of us. Just as natural children bear resemblance, bear the image of their parents, so we, converted, given the seal of the Spirit, given a new heart, begin to take on the image of our Father. We begin to look like him. We begin to produce fruit that is godly, that is Christ-like. He impresses his image on us. He takes up residence in us, and he begins to change us. But he also, by way of seal, he confirms that we truly are his, that we truly belong to him. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. You see, just as a seal or a signature on a letter attests to the genuineness of a particular document, so the presence of the Holy Spirit proves the genuineness of a believer. Friends, it's not simply our profession of faith. It's not simply our religious activities. It's not simply our good works that prove our conversions, but rather the witness of the Holy Spirit, particularly, specifically, the witness of fruit in our lives that confirms our conversion. It's not just our religious activity. There are are lots of individuals that run around doing lots of religious things that are lost, who don't know Christ. Doing, 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 working, 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 but who don't know Christ savingly, personally. The primary nature of the Spirit's work in those whom He seals is to make them holy. Hence His name, the Holy Spirit. In other words, holiness is the authenticating mark of a Christian. Glance back at verse 4 for just a moment. God's desire, he tells us, is that we would be holy and blameless before him. You see, it's growth and holiness that gives us assurance of the reality that we are indeed united to Christ. We're imperfect, we're flawed in every way. Yes? Agree? We're imperfect, we're flawed in every way. But if there is not at least the bud of growing holiness in our lives, then we need to ask ourselves a whole new set of questions. Now, some of us are young in our faith. And so the the bud of the gorgeous flower may just be sprouting. And for some of us, it's wide open in the full array of the sun. But if holiness is not evident in our lives, at least in its bud form, then we need to ask ourselves whether or not we are genuinely converted. Whether or not we know Christ savingly. And I think it's good, you know, if we're not being challenged, then something's wrong. And Paul told us in his letter to the church at Corinth to examine ourselves. I, I need to examine myself. The one standing before you teaching the word needs to be examining himself to see if he's in the faith. 
Is there demonstrable, verifiable fruit being born in my life? Is holiness a desire? Is a love for God growing? Is a love for God's Word burning? Even if it's a small fire, is it burning? Is there a love for people? How will they know that you're my disciples? By your love for others. Are those things there, at least in their bud form? The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friends, if there's not a growing measure of those things in our lives, then we need to question ourselves as to the authenticity of our conversion. J.C. Ryle once said this. I appreciate him. He's long passed away. But he said, What may we expect to see in true conversion? There will always be something seen in a converted man's character, his feelings, his conduct, his opinions, and his daily life. You will not see in him perfection, but you will see in him something peculiar, distinct and different from other people. Remember, separating you from someone who's just moral. You'll see him hating sin, loving Christ, following hard after holiness, taking pleasure in his Bible, persevering in prayer. You'll see him repentant, humble, believing, temperate, charitable, truthful, good-tempered, patient, upright, honorable, and kind. These, at any rate, will be his aims. These are the things which he will follow hard after, however short he may come to perfection. In some converted people, you'll see these more distinctly than in others. But wherever there is true conversion, something of this kind will be seen. So let me ask you this question. How are we doing there? How are we doing? Is our life producing real, demonstrable, verifiable, godly fruit, even if it's in bud form? Two books I want to commend to your library. One is Respectable Sins, written by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges is had a significant impact in my life, passed away a week ago today, last, last uh, Sunday afternoon, Jerry Bridges passed into glory. Phenomenal book, as is anything Jerry Bridges writes, I would commend to you. But Respectable Sins, the other book is written by Kevin DeYoung, and it is entitled The Hole in Our Holiness. And I let somebody borrow it or I would hold it up for you as well. Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges and The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. Secondly, there on your outline, the Holy Spirit marks believers with divine ownership. Not only does he confirm us with spiritual authenticity, but he marks us with divine ownership. When the Holy Spirit seals believers, he marks them as God's divine possession. From that moment on, entirely and eternally belonging to him. You see, the Spirit's seal declares that the transaction of salvation has been divi- as, is divinely official and finished. Remember, Jesus uttered those words, glorious words from the cross. It is finished. It's finished. The Holy Spirit as a seal marks God's divine ownership over us, declaring the transaction of salvation as being divinely official and final. God has purchased us to be his own. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, doesn't it? He says, did you not know that your body is the spirit of the holy temple? You were bought with a price. You're not your own. So therefore, glorify God with your body. You were purchased. Purchased. You're not your own. 
C, the Holy Spirit supplies believers with unshakable security. A sense of spiritual authenticity, a mark of divine ownership, and then endowing us or giving us a sense of unshakable security. You see, seals were also used in Paul's day to protect the contents of something by preventing it from being opened. We, we uh, enjoy many modern conveniences today that Paul didn't in his day, like vacuum sealing. We go to the store and we can buy a bag of chips, and you open it, and it breaks the seal. But Paul didn't have that in his day, not in the same way that we did, obviously. So seals were important, used to protect the contents of something by preventing it from being opened. This particular word, as a matter of fact, sealed, it was used in reference to Jesus' tomb. Afraid that Jesus' disciples might try to come and steal his body, his body and falsely claim his resurrection, Jewish leaders obtained Pilate's permission to place a seal on the tomb and to guard it with soldiers. Same word, seal. And so in an infinitely greater way, the Holy Spirit secures each believer, marking them with his own permanent seal, never able to be stripped away from our Father. Jesus said it this way. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand and my Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hand. You see, our salvation is secure in Christ. If we are genuinely converted, producing demonstrable, verifiable fruit, our salvation is as secure as the righteousness of Christ. You can no more lose your salvation. You can no more lose the seal of the promised Holy Spirit than Jesus Christ can lose His righteousness. It can't happen. It can't happen. It can never be stripped away from us. Can we grieve the Holy Spirit as believers? Absolutely. We'll learn more about that in Ephesians chapter 4. But it can never be taken from us. We never have to fear that He will leave us. There's a few words about the seal of the Spirit. Let me say in last minute and 18 seconds I have left. Something about the guarantee of the Spirit. Turn your attention to verse 14. Paul writes, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Talked about the seal of the Spirit. The Spirit confirms us with a sense of spiritual authenticity. He marks us with a sense of divine ownership and He supplies us with an unshakable reality of security that He'll never leave us or forsake us. He has sealed us, but he also guarantees us something. He guarantees us that our inheritance, that which we're looking forward to, that which we're longing for, will be provided. I mean, we have immense spiritual blessings this side of eternity. We've studied some of those over the last five weeks. But we are looking forward to the culmination of those blessings. We're looking forward to the the full measure of those blessings being endowed upon us namely the resurrection of these bodies. You see, at the cross, at the moment of our conversion, when we heard the word of truth and we believed into Christ and we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the moment of our conversion, we were freed from sin's penalty. It is finished. We were also freed from sin's power. Sin no longer has dominion over us. It's no longer our king, no longer our master. Of course, that comes with a whole lot of implications. That means every time we sin, we do it willingly and voluntarily. No one's making us. We've been freed from the power of sin. New heart, given the indwelling Holy Spirit. But the thing that we have not yet been given is freedom from the presence of sin. 
That's what we're looking forward to at the resurrection. So Paul tells us in, in Romans. It says, all creation groans, and we groan as well for the day of redemption when we will shed these, these sinful bodies and we will take on bodies that are not encumbered by sin. We're waiting to be freed from the, the, the presence of sin. The Spirit guarantees us of that. He is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I love this word translated guarantee here. In Paul's day, it was used to describe a down payment or an earnest that was made. To, to signify that here's, here's some of the funds, the rest of the funds are sure to come. I mean, when we buy a house, we do that. We put down earnest money. A little bit of money up front telling the buyers we're serious and the rest of the money is to follow. Well, in that sense, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. A sense of a down payment, a first installment, a pledge, a proof of God's good faith that there's more to come in the way of spiritual blessings. Just like that fork is a reminder to us that there is more and there is better to come. The Spirit is the advance pledge of all that is laid up for the believer in heaven. But here's the beautiful part. The sealing, our sealing with the promised Holy Spirit, in doing so, God isn't simply providing us with the promise of a future inheritance. It's it's not just the promise that everything is still yet future. When he seals us with the promised Holy Spirit, he graciously gives us now a foretaste of the inheritance that is to come by putting himself in us. That's a sure promise. You want a promise you can take to the bank? You want a promise that's as good as gold? A deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come, the promised Holy Spirit. That's a sure promise. We're given a foretaste of that future inheritance now, even if it's only a small fracture of its future, final, and full fulfillment. It's interesting to note that a later form of this very word guarantee here came to refer to an engagement ring. You know, an engagement ring is given as uh, the assurance that promises made will be kept. I'm doing some pre-marriage counseling with a young couple right now that's going to be married soon. She wears an engagement ring. And that engagement ring, every time it catches her eye, is a reminder to her that promises made will be promises kept. The Holy Spirit is to us like an engagement ring given to a bride, the first installment of what is to follow. He seals us until, until the consummation of days when Jesus returns, fulfilling all of redemption's promises at the resurrection. And in the meantime, while we wait, we have the pledge of the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. Wow. What a promise. What a promise. We have unwavering confidence that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He'll bring it to its culmination when God wraps up all things in his Son. Paul goes on to say, until we acquire possession of it. Verse 14 here. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance, guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. I'm, I'm, I'm not in love with the ESV translation of this particular phrase. Raise your hand if you have a New American Standard Bible sitting on your lap. I think your translation captures it a little bit more clearly from the original Greek language here. The ESV footnotes it this way, but why it's not translated that way, I'm, I'm not certain. 
But the, the NASB captures it this way, and I think this is a clear translation here. It translates it, until the redemption of God's purchased possession. So the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of God's purchased possession. You see, I think this fits better with the whole possessive nature of the seal in verse 13. Remember we said that that's got the mark of God's ownership of us. And so we're sealed until the redemption of God's purchased possession, I think is the best translation there. You see, our inheritance, as marvelous and awesome and guaranteed as it is, is not even the primary purpose of our salvation. And you say, what? Our inheritance, as marvelous and awesome and guaranteed as it is, is not the primary purpose of our salvation. The great overriding, the great overarching purpose of God's redemption of men is the rescuing of what is His own possession. He owns us doubly. Remember the little boy with the boat? He created us and he purchased us. And in an ultimate and in a final sense, at the culmination of days, at the resurrection of these bodies, God will claim in an ultimate and final sense what is already his. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 14. And the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that truth will come to fruition. That truth will be fulfilled couple of verses. I don't have time because we were out of time minutes ago. If you want to go back and look at a couple of verses on your own, would encourage you to go back and look at Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. God redeemed us to be a people for himself, for his own possession. Titus 2, 13 and 14. And then 1 Peter 2, 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. That's a familiar text to you, but you're a chosen a people, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. People for his own possession. Lastly, notice that Paul concludes verse 14 saying to the praise of his glory. As a matter of fact, this is the third time that phrase has come across uh, our eyeballs. After each section, so if you bracketed at the beginning, verses 3 through 6, look back at your Bible and notice what is there at the end of verse 6. Talking about the Father's planning of redemption. When Paul concludes that, he says to the praise of his glory. Verses 7 through 12, the Son Purchasing redemption. Notice what appears there in verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Seeing the Spirit sealing and guaranteeing here in verses 13 and 14. Notice what comes at the end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. You see, God's ultimate goal in redeeming men is the praise of his glory. We're not not saved and blessed for our own glory, but for God's glory. God saved us to serve Him and to praise Him with all our lives. And thanks be to God when we fail, and we do, that we have an advocate in heaven who pleads our case on the basis of His spilled blood for us. You know, it's no wonder that Paul begins this glorious letter singing, Blessed is God, and that he concludes verse 14 singing to the praise of His glory. The psalmist said it this way in conclusion. The concluding psalm, Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound and with lute and harp and with tambourine and with dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud crashing cymbals, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Is it true of us? Is it true of us?